So our scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. And if you're using one of the Bibles from the here, uh, it's on page 942. So Romans 6, verses 1 through 23. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin... And have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus is the word of God. Well, good morning, church. If you'll turn from Romans. If you're there in Romans, go a couple chapters ahead to 1 Corinthians. You'll pass. It's the very next letter in 
the Bible, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again this morning. Um, if you're a guest, welcome. Glad you're here. And um, thanks for joining us this morning. We are in the middle of a, of a Christmas series right now, four sermons, and we're on the second half of that now. We're preaching four sermons on 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, which reads, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So in that verse of Scripture, we have four words that describe what Christ became for us. And it's appropriate to take up that consideration now that it's Christmas time and we're celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. And we've already preached on wisdom. Pastor Ted did that, kicking off our series. Pastor Keith last week dealt with the word righteousness. And this morning I have the third word, sanctification. And then Pastor Jonathan on Christmas morning, Lord willing, next week we'll take up the final word, redemption. So I'm going to get right in this morning. Here, we're going to be dealing with this word, sanctification. And I've got three points in my sermon. First of all, I want to give a definition. We're going to talk about what this word means. It's a big religious word, and I want to unpack it and help us understand what that word sanctification is all about. Second, I want to talk about where it comes from. What is the cause of it? And then finally, I want to talk about the motive for it. So we're going to get a definition, a cause, and a motive. That's where we're going this morning. So let's start with the definition of sanctification, this word sanctification. What does it mean? Well, literally, etymologically, in terms of what the word actually means, it refers to being set apart for something. So to sanctify something or to experience sanctification is to be set apart from common things to God. If you're familiar at all with the story of the Bible and you read the Old Testament, this word and concept shows up again and again as God repeatedly explains what the concept of sanctification means. He starts up by calling his people, you know, in the book of Exodus, out of Egypt to be his own people, and that was an act of sanctifying them. He was separating them from slavery and bringing them into be his own covenant people. And then as he begins to set up his presence in their midst through the tabernacle at first and later the temple, he has specific instructions on how that is to be set up and how, how he's to be approached. And many items within those tabernacle, in the tabernacle and later within the temple are sanctified. They're set apart. They're special. They're unique. They're holy. And so that's what the concept of sanctification is all about. However, when it's used in the New Testament, it's not easily defined. Because even though it literally means set apart, the New Testament uses the word group to sanctify to refer to three inseparable yet very identifiable aspects of salvation. And the failure to recognize the multiple ways in which this, used, this word is used can lead to some significant errors if we're not careful. So the New Testament, in other words, does not just use the word sanctify in the same way every time, but rather as three inseparable yet distinct aspects of salvation. So I want to talk about what those three different, we could say, kinds of sanctification are in the scriptures. Here's the first one. The first one is positional sanctification. This refers to the fact that every believer is sanctified in principle by the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 10.10 says that we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. We are sanctified. There is a very real sense 
Christian, as you sit here this morning, that you are sanctified. You have been definitively set apart by the blood and sacrifice of Christ to belong to God. The believer's status before God, your status as a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning, before God is one of sanctity in Christ. You are holy in Christ. You are belong to God. You have been set apart for him, even though your character remains yet imperfect and sinful and lacking in perfect holiness. So we are set apart unto God and guaranteed final salvation. Here's how George Whitfield, old preacher from a couple centuries ago, put this in his words, describing what positional sanctification is all about. He said, In our hearts as believers, sin no longer has dominion over us. We are freed from the power, though not the indwelling of sin. We are holy, both in heart and life, in all manner of conversation. We are made partakers of a divine nature, and from Jesus Christ we have received grace upon grace. Every grace that is in Christ is copied and transcribed into our souls, and we are transformed into his likeness. Christ is formed within us, and we dwell in him, and, are, and he in us, and we are led by the Spirit and bring forth the fruits of the Spirit. We know that Christ is our Emmanuel, that God is with us and we are in him, that we are living temples of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, being a holy habitation of the Lord, the whole Trinity dwells and walks in us. Even here, we sit together with Christ in heavenly places and are vitally united to him, our head, by a living faith. Our Redeemer, our Maker, is our husband, and we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. We talk, we walk with him as a man talks and walks with his friend. In short, we are one with Christ, even as Jesus Christ and the Father are one. That's some amazingly deep theological truth right there. But the whole point of it is describe our position before God. How does God see us once we place our faith in Christ? Once we repent of sin, receive the gospel message, turn from sin, place our faith in Christ, what is, how does God see us? He sees us as holy and sanctified in a positional sense. We have been separated from sin and the life of sin, and we have been placed into his family. We have been brought near to him. So our understanding has changed. Though it once was dark, it's now become light. Our wills, which before were contrary to God, have now become desirous of God's will and one with God's will. Our affections, which once chased after non-God things, are now channeled on things above. Our memory is now filled with divine truth and thoughts. Our consciences are now enlightened, though they once were dead. The members of our bodies, our hands, our feet, which were once instruments of uncleanness, are now instruments of righteousness and holiness. In short, we're new people. We're new creatures. The old has passed away. The new has come. And I think it's this aspect of sanctification that Paul is specifically referring to when he uses this word in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He's talking about our positional status in Christ. Why do I think that? Well, because of the way it's used elsewhere in the letter. Look with me, if you would, quickly back at chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul introduces this word sanctification the very first time as he's writing to the Corinthians. And he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, notice, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place. He's saying that's already happened. 
That's something that's already occurred. We are already positionally sanctified before God. He also uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. If you'll look there with me at that verse. 1 Corinthians six eleven. Paul talking about, in verses 9 and 10, about the life that the unrighteous live and that we used to live, marked by sexual immorality and idolatry and adultery, stealing and greed and drunkenness and all this. And he goes on in verse 11, he says, Such were some of you. That's who we once were, some of us as Christians. But you were washed. You were sanctified. That is, you were separated from that life, definitively, and positionally. So that's the first aspect of sanctification, that we are positionally brought out of death into life, set apart for God at our conversion. What's the second? The second, which is what we often think of when we think of the word sanctification, is progressive sanctification. So we've talked about positional. Let's talk for a minute about progressive sanctification. This has to do with the course of life between your positional sanctification when you're converted to Christ that separates us from sin's penalty and perfected sanctification, which we'll talk about in a moment, that separates us from sin's presence. Progressive sanctification is the experience of separation from sin's power in our daily lives. Despite having a sanctified status as Christians before God, We as true Christians have not arrived at a holy, sanctified condition. We remain sinful. We remain not separated completely from sin's power in our daily life. So therefore, we have to strive for holiness. We have to pursue sanctification. This is what Hebrews 12.14 says. Pursue sanctification. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. All those who are positionally sanctified at conversion are progressively sanctified. Imperfect, but really. Growth in holiness must follow regeneration. That is, when we become Christians, we are set on a path of progressive, though imperfect, pursuit of holiness before God. This is what Paul prays that the Thessalonians would experience. If you'll look with me. At 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is what Paul prays for at the end of his letter to those believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22, verse 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So that is referring to a progressive sanctification that's to be characteristic of our lives, which will eventually be completed when we die and go to be with the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you some questions this morning, okay? Because it's real easy to talk about progressive sanctification and growing in grace in the abstract. How do you know if it's happening to you? How do you know right now, as you sit here, that you are being progressively sanctified? You ever ask that question? Do you think about that? That's the mark of a Christian, to think about what it means to grow in holiness and be holy. Let me just give you some questions that can help you get at this idea. I think there are three things, three markers 
of what, of what progressive sanctification begins to look like. And I'm going to try to keep it specific while at the same time being general. So that's a hard thing to do, but we'll give it a go. And these three things are a growing evidence of God's presence in your life. Secondly, a growing evidence that Scripture is changing you. And thirdly, a growing appreciation for the mercy of God that you have received. Those three things begin to help us understand whether or not we are really being progressively sanctified. Now, let me tack on some questions to those so you can begin thinking through that this morning. Evidence of God's presence in your life. Think about this. How real has God been to you this past week? How clear and vivid is your assurance and certainty of his fatherly love for you and his forgiveness of you? To what degree is that real to you right now? Does it move you when you sing of it? Not just the pretty melody of O Holy Night, but being gripped by the reality that it's talking about. That you were a slave who was oppressed in sin and Christ has come and set you free. Are you having any particular seasons of sweet delight in God lately? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Do you really sense him giving you his love? That's evidence of God's presence in your life. What about evidence of scripture changing you? Have you been finding scripture to be alive and active in your own soul as you read it? First of all, you got to be reading it. That's an evidence of sanctification. If the Bible sits for months unengaged by you, be, le- be weary of your profession, that you can go months. Now, I'm not talking to, I know that all believers go through particular seasons of dryness and dullness, but if you can go prolonged seasons, semesters, without engaging Scripture at any level, I'm not talking about having a, a one-hour quiet time every day or something like that, but no engagement with the Word of God, how can you say you're being progressively sanctified? Since it's the means of God's sanctification, according to John 17, 17, is the truth of God's word. When God saves a person, he inclines that person's heart to his word in such that they engage the Bible, and the Bible engages them, and through that truth, they are becoming changed. So are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Could you name them? Could you give them to a brother or sister? Say, this particular truth of Scripture is very meaningful to me these days. And here's how. And here's why. Which ones? Well, that, you know, that one Scripture about, a, you know, God's love. I'm sorry, well, which one, you know? Are you finding God's calling you or challenging you to something through the Word? How, how are you being confronted by scripture? How is God calling you to faith and obedience and perhaps risk? In what ways? Could you be specific? So that's evidence of scripture changing. What about evidence of growing appreciation for God's mercy? Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil of your own heart? And in response, a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God in Christ? That's evidence, brothers and sisters, of progressive sanctification. There could be lots of other ways we could come at it, but I hope that that 
serves to stir you. And perhaps some of you are a little bit sleepy spiritually this morning, and that's meant to wake you up and be a means of sanctification for you. Because here's the deal. If you haven't been that way, if you truly are positionally sanctified and are being progressively sanctified, you're bothered by those questions. And it stirs your soul, and it kind of kicks the dust up, and it reinvigorates you. It's like, yes, I need that. I need to pursue Jesus. And the Lord will use such questions to evoke faith in you and, and, and create repentance and conviction and lead you into pursuit of him. So that's progressive sanctification. That's the war of our lives. It's the war of our lives. The good fight of faith. Fighting the good fight of faith, the way Paul describes it. Fighting sin, pursuing holiness, repenting, 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 believing, believing, believing. That's the fight of our lives. It's never perfect, but it is real. It has a real trajectory. There is growth over time. It's, we can't measure growth in days and weeks and years, but we do measure growth in decades. And we can look back and say, yeah, by God's grace, I am not the same. I am not the person I was even 10 years ago. There have been, there's been evidence that God is humbling me, is changing me, and that I'm growing. Third, the third aspect of sanctification, we've looked at positional and progressive. Let's talk about perfected perfected sanctification. This is the sanctification we look forward to. This is the one we long for. This is the final glorification when we are with Christ and experience total separation from the presence of sin. Ephesians 5.27 speaks of us being in his presence without fault, blameless. Jude 24 and 25 speaks of us being presented before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. That's final sanctification. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, talks about us being the children of God and that setting our hope on the future glorification that we're going to experience, and then that has a result of causing us to pursue purity now, knowing that that's what we are going to be when we see him as he is. So here's a chart. Let me just put this up here. And so you can see the distinction between these three words. I hope this is helpful to you because I think you need, this is basic theology, but you got to get your head around this stuff. Otherwise you're going to be like, okay, so how does God see me and how do I relate to him and all this stuff? It is, it's very practical. All right. So positionally right now, as a Christian, if we are in Christ, we are separated from sin's penalty. That's what it means. And when it happens is at the start of the Christian life at conversion. Progressive sanctification is separation from sin's power and it happens during the course of life. It is imperfect, but it is real. And then perfected sanctification is separation from sin's presence, and that occurs at the end of Christian life at death. So we've got positional sanctification at the beginning, progressive sanctification in the middle, and perfected sanctification at the end. And you can't separate any of those three. Those who have been positionally sanctified at the beginning and will be perfected at the end are progressively sanctified in this life in the middle. That's how you know the true children of God from the false professors. Whether or not there is real practical godliness and holiness, which is derived from the Bible, in their life. So brother and sister in Christ, sanctification is something that right now you have in Christ before God, something that you will have and something that you must have. You got that? Sanctification is something that you have, you will have, and you must have. 
You have it positionally. You will have it perfected. You must have it now to some degree. Growth, development. Your state in holiness is conferred. Your condition in holiness must be pursued. Through Christ, you are made holy in your standing before God, and through Christ, you are called to reflect that standing by being holy in daily life. You are called to be in lifestyle what you are in principle. So all three of these are packed together in one of those verses that Tom read for us at the beginning from in Romans chapter 6, which is a great chapter on sanctification and what it means. That's why I had him read it. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, puts all these things together. The words aren't there, but the concepts certainly are. All right? So look at Romans chapter 6, verse 22. There's positional, progressive, and perfected sanctification all right here. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. See that? That's positional sanctification. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. That's your position as a Christian. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. Now, what kind of sanctification is Paul referring to there? Positional, progressive, or perfected? Progressive. He says, positionally, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves of God. How do you know? The fruit is progressive godliness. And its end, the end of progressive godliness, is eternal life, perfected sanctification. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you have heard that verse before? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. That's a gospel presentation for a lot of people. You might have been converted hearing that verse. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Absolutely praise God. Amen. Absolutely true. But notice verse 22. Okay? It's not like, okay, free ticket. I can live however I want, right? Because salvation is free. No. It's, yes, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You didn't earn it. You'll never earn it. But the fruit of receiving that free gift is being progressively changed by it. And that too is a gift. Which is why you can speak of all of eternal life as a gift. Everything that, when we get to, when we get to heaven and we're experiencing eternal life, we're not going to say, man, I earned that. That's really crystal clear. No, what will be, we'll be really crystal clear is this is a gift of God. This was the evidence of the grace and mercy of God. And every part of it is important. So I hope that helps that, with a definition. I spent some time on that, gave you a little theology, but I hope it helps in understanding this word, what sanctification is. It means being set apart from sin to God to pursue holiness. It happens positionally, progressively, and it, and it will be perfected. Now, what's the cause of it? Where does it come from? And I think it's important, looking back here at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the order that Paul gives to these words that we've been discussing these last several weeks and preaching on. Verse 30 again, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification. Now, that righteousness leading to sanctification is very important. I don't think it's an accident 
that Paul put righteousness before he put sanctification. The order here is, the, is very important. It's because righteousness, what Pastor Keith preached on last week, righteousness, which is being justified before God, counted righteous positionally, is the cause of sanctification, not vice versa. We don't get God to count us innocent and to remove the guilt of our sin by being righteous, by presenting our record to him and saying, God, I've tried hard. I've worked hard at being a good person. My good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. How about some forgiveness? That's not the way it works. The way it works is God gives you, by faith alone, a perfect A+, a righteousness, a like Pastor Keith described, the robe of righteousness that clothes us, that is the perfect life and death of Jesus Christ credited to our account, to use an accounting term. It gets credited to our account so that when God pulls up the bank account in heaven of every believer, he looks and sees 100% righteousness because Jesus made that deposit. That's the way he views us. And so when we get that, then as a result of that, we live a holy life. John 8, 11, very, very important per- verse. Remember when the sinful woman comes to Jesus, caught in adultery, they're getting ready to stone her. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See the order there? She comes to him, pleads for mercy, forgiveness. He looks around, says, anybody got any condemnation for this woman after in, in calling them all to consider their own sinfulness? Says, anybody got any stones for her? They don't. Says, well, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. See, see, see the order there? The order is justification, counted innocent, guilt, guiltless, forgiven. Now leave your life of sin. That's Christian. Anything else is works righteousness, man-made religion. Do this, do this, do this. God will treat you this way. That's every other religion in the world at some level. Christianity is entirely different. It puts... Freedom, justification, acquittal, righteousness at the front end and then calls us to live in light of it. It's wonderful. It's great news. John Piper says that the only sin that we can defeat is a forgiven sin. You ever think about that? Do you think about that the sins that you're battling with on a daily basis are forgiven sins? That changes the game, doesn't it? It changes the game. It's no longer about, well, I've got to fight this sin or God's not going to accept me. It's all about God has accepted me. I'm going to fight this sin. God has forgiven me. I'm going to make war on my sin. Here's another chart. I hope this helps di- di- differentiate between what Pastor Keith talked about last week and what I'm talking about now. Here's justification on the left and sanctification on the right. I promise this is the last table today. Sorry, I'm getting a little nerdy on you. All right, justification, left side. Being declared righteous, sanctification, being made righteous. Justification, position before God, sanctification, practice with God. Justification, immediate and complete. Sanctification, progressive and incomplete in this life. Justification, objective, it's Christ's work for us. Sanctification is subjective, it's Christ's work in us. So though it's important to distinguish between justification and sanctification, these two doctrines are inseparable. 
God does not justify someone without sanctifying him as well. The evidence of justification is sanctification. Sanctification is not optional. If one has truly been justified, that that will be evident by a progressive work of sanctification in that person's life. Now, we live in a day of gospel recovery. And I am immensely grateful for it. I don't know if you've noticed what's happened in the past 25 or so years, but there has been a progressive rediscovery in the church of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its freeness and fullness. That anyone, anywhere, no matter what their sinful past, no matter what they've done, no matter what they haven't done, can come to Jesus and have their sins completely forgiven and fully washed away. And praise God, we're never going to stop preaching that message because it's absolutely 100% true. But there is a tendency, and there can be a tendency, that when the free grace of God is celebrated, and it should be, and it must be, that transformation is not emphasized, or the fruit of that is not talked about, for fear that it might somehow undermine the freeness of the offer. And this is nothing new. This has been coming up again and again. This is what the book of Romans is about. I mean, Romans chapter 6, Paul writes Romans chapter 6 because we tend to think this way. He takes five chapters and unpacks the freeness of salvation. That if you come to Jesus, you can be totally acquitted. You're justified. You're righteous before God. And then he says in chapter 6 verse 1, but don't make a mistake. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? You see what he's saying? Look, if God gets so much glory by forgiving so much sin and it demonstrates his grace, shouldn't we keep sinning so he can get more glory? Get the logic? God's glorified in forgiving sin, so we need to max it out. Let's sin up a storm. God forgives it. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're dead to sin. How can you still live in it? So this is nothing new. This is nothing new in Paul's life, and it was nothing new for a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He's an important guy. I encourage you to get to know him. He was incredibly important. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and scholar who lived in the years leading up to World War II. He found that much of the church in his country had become totally satisfied with what they interpreted as as Martin Luther's teaching about justification and took little interest in living out their faith. Like, we're justified by faith alone. Amen. That was what the whole people were. So therefore, lifestyle doesn't matter. They didn't understand Luther. (laughs) That was the problem. In 1937, Bonhoeffer published a now famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to pick it up. Put it on your 2017 reading list. In the book, Bonhoeffer introduced a phrase that has become very well known. That phrase was cheap grace. Cheap grace. And he defined it this way. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, and a system. The justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church. Discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without a cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
Couldn't cheap grace also be defined as trying to have justification without sanctification? Exactly. Bonhoeffer remained a faithful disciple during the years of Adolf Hitler's domination of Germany. He was safe in the United States, but in 1939, he returned to Germany to lead his confessing church to resist Nazi teaching. He continued serving Christ until he was executed by the Nazi prison guards shortly before the war ended. In The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer writes the following, quote, When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. These were not just words to Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, like many before and since, died because he was a faithful disciple of Jesus. This is a story we need to know about because he lost his life in part because he believed the doctrine of sanctification. So that's Bonhoeffer. Let us, then let us learn from our brother in Christ from 60 plus years ago who laid his life down so that we wouldn't buy into cheap grace. Grace cost Jesus his life. And therefore, grace must affect us. If you can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and is bleeding for you and is dying for you and is forgiving of you and walk away from that unchanged, have you really encountered Jesus? Have you really encountered him? So it's so, so important to understand the distinction between those things. And it's so hard to keep in balance. It's a tension that has to be maintained, and we're usually not comfortable with tensions like that. George Whitfield gives us some good counsel about how to maintain the tension between justification and sanctification. He says, we must keep the medium between the two extremes. Number one, not insist so much on the one hand upon Christ outside of us, that is justifying us, as to exclude Christ inside of us as an evidence of our being his and a preparation for future glory. So he's, what he's saying is we can't focus so much on just preaching freeness of salvation and justification all the time without also not emphasizing the, the second half. But, he says, the other extreme to avoid is so depend on talking about Christ within us and the fruit of the Spirit and being transformed that we forget that outside of us is the righteousness of Christ that we have positionally by faith alone. It's a very real tension that we experience in our life, which is why I put on my uh, Twitter and Facebook this week a quote by J.C. Ryle that says, the mark of a true Christian is this. He is marked by both his inward warfare and his inward peace. Do you know that reality? We're marked by inward warfare and fight with sin. At the same time, we're totally comforted by the love and forgiveness of God. It's an amazing thing to live. It's a totally unique third existence. It's not Better get righteous, or God's not going to count me righteous, or God's counted me righteous, who cares if I'm righteous? It's neither of those. It's God has counted me righteous. I have an inward peace that no man can take from me because my salvation is not dependent upon me. My justification is dependent completely on the work of Jesus Christ, and that caused me to make war on my sin and to hate everything contrary to him in my life. So that's... That's the cause. I hope that makes sense, and I hope that helps you get your head a little bit around how we engage this sanctification fight as Christians. Here's the third and final point. We've talked about the definition, positional, progressive, perfected. We've talked about the cause, that justification, the righteousness we receive when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, affects us and changes us, and it is the cause of us pursuing holiness. 
Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go and sin no more. Now the third motive. The motive. And this is, I think, all so important. Notice 1 Corinthians one thirty again. We get the motive here. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us sanctification. So skip the few words there, but I want you to get the idea. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us sanctification. So what is the focus of our sanctification? What's the motive? What's the driver? It's a person. It's a person. It's not a doctrine. It's not a culture. It's not a book. It's a person. It's a person that that doctrine talks about and that book speaks of and that church culture should reflect. So the motive for sanctification is Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth underscores the motive that we are to have in our pursuit of sanctification. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. There's positional sanctification. And he died for all that those who live for him might no longer live for themselves but for him who died for their sake and was raised. So we have died positionally in the death of Christ. We have been raised positionally in the death of Christ. We have a new spiritual identity. He died for us so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. There's progressive sanctification. That's what progressive sanctification is. It's being freed from self-love and self-living to other-oriented love and Christ-honoring living. A person dominated by self and selfish interest is not being progressively sanctified since the purpose of progressional sanctification is to free you from yourself. Concern for yourself, occupation with yourself, fixation upon yourself. And to turn you outward and upward, not inward. Progressive sanctification turns you outward and upward. Upward to Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and outward to others to love them as Christ has loved you. Not inward to think about yourself and dwell on yourself all the time. So, Paul says, he died for us, that we might live for him, but what's the motive? The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ. The fact that he laid his life down. So Christ as the motive for progressive sanctification is found first in in an awareness of his love. How do you get a fresh sense of the love of Christ upon your heart so that you're motivated to pursue holiness? Ever asked that question? It's a good question to ask, right? How do I get a new appreciation of the love of Christ upon my heart since that it's the love of Christ that's going to control me to live a life that's pleasing to God? In a progression, not progressive, not a positional sense, right? So how am I going to get that fresh love of God upon my heart? I would encourage I I want to say three things about how to get it. Number one, an ever-growing awareness of God's holiness and your own sinfulness. You've got to get to know who God really is and all of his greatness and grandeur and holiness coupled with your own sinfulness and unworthiness of, of, of having a God such as him to be yours and to have the privilege of being brought near. Number two, an assurance that our sins, however great, have been forgiven through Christ's death on the cross and then a response of love and obedience. Now, do I just come up with that? Is that just me, you know, just thinking in my own head? 
what, what can be a therapeutic way to throw this on the church and encourage them to pursue the love of Christ? No. It's the pattern of Scripture and the way God interacts with people. Let me just give you four quick illustrations of this. I call it God, guilt, grace, gratitude. When God encounters people, he shows them God and they pee their pants. <laughs> they get scared. They encounter God in, their, in his holiness and they tremble before him. That's God. Then they experience their guilt. Then they experience his grace or the gospel. And then they experience gratitude and they're changed. Let me give you four. Think about the sinful woman in Luke 7. She comes to Jesus full of adultery, full of sin. She comes to Jesus, encounters Jesus, knows he's holy, falls down in front of him, trembling for her sin. This is a holy man. But, and she experiences her guilt. And then he says to this woman, your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And then what does she experience? Lavish gratitude and love for him. This also happens in Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah's encounter with God? Sees the Lord, a vision of the Lord in his temple, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, seraphim and cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's Isaiah do? Hits the ground. Guilty. I am, woe is me, for I am undone, and I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the people, a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. He experiences his guilt, and he's afraid he's getting ready to be ripped apart. God sends an angel, grab a, t- a coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips, and makes him clean. He experiences grace. And then what's the result of that? Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I'll sign up for that awful assignment you're getting ready to give me. And it was an awful assignment. Go preach to people who aren't ever going to listen to you. That's Isaiah's assignment. Go preach to a church of one. It's not going to grow, but you be faithful. What's that kind of assignment? Would I sign up for that assignment? 35 years, one convert, you. But that, but that was, yes, Lord, I'll do it because I've experienced such grace in the midst of my guilt. What about Paul? Philippians chapter 3, read it this afternoon. It's a great example of this. Paul, here he is, self-righteous to the core, God is pedigree, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the law, perfect. And then he says, wait, that's not sufficient. That righteousness is not sufficient enough to earn me a place in heaven. And he says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Well, that's Romans. But then in Philippians chapter 3, he, talks to un- he starts to unpack this righteousness that is a gift. And then he responds with this graceful gracious response of now I'm going to no longer look at what is past but look ahead to what is a future and I'm going to live my life for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus so that's the way Philippians works Philippians chapter 3 verses like 1 through 1 through 8 or 1 through 7 is all God and guilt or well it's his righteousness that he thinks he has and he experiences guilt as a result of it because it's not adequate then this righteousness from God is given and supplied to him, and then his response is a grateful response of love and obedience. One more. This is just the structure of the book of Romans. If you ever think about how the book of Romans is structured, in chapters 1 and 2, we have our ruin, our sin. God is holy. We are not. In our unrighteousness and in our self-professed man-made righteousness, we're undone. Chapter 3 through 5, 
God introduces us through Paul to this righteousness that has been provided for us as a free gift through Jesus Christ. Then chapters 6 through 8 talk about the changed life that results from it. God, guilt, grace, gratitude. That's the way it works throughout Scripture. As you see people encounter God in the Bible, see that pattern play out. And it's the consciousness of our own sinfulness and the assurance of God's forgiveness that are the foundation of our love for him. Our love for him is motivated by that reality of God, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Here's what one writer says, All real love toward Christ must be preceded by a deep consciousness of our own sinfulness and unfitness for acceptance before the holy God, and by the assurance that for Jesus' sake our sins, however great they may be, are forgiven. Listen to this. Love for the Lord that is not founded upon these two foundations cannot be genuine or permanent. End quote. Very important to understand. The only way we will have this controlling persuasion in our heart and soul of the worthiness of Christ to be lived for and died for and served to the end is the, is the consciousness of his love upon our hearts. And some old hymn writers talk about this so well. John Newton, remember this line in one of his hymns, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Think about that. Before you're a Christian, did you see obedience to Jesus as pleasure or him taking away your pleasure? That's the way we see it before Christ. I'm not going to follow Jesus. Good grief, look at all the stuff he tells you no to. But notice when John Newton says, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, before coming to Christ, since we have seen his beauty... His love for us displayed on the cross, they're joined to part no more. In other words, our pleasure has become our duty. I want to love you. I want to live for you. And it's through seeing his beauty that we are transformed in that way. William Cooper says things, disciple of John Newton, says the same thing. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, and here's parting voice, justification. Changes a slave into a child and duty into choice, sanctification. Now I'm going to close. This is the last quote. And it's a, it's a little bit of a long one, but I, I hope you'll hang with me. It's Charles Spurgeon on this passage. And I'm going to close with it because he describes better than I could the motive of pursuing holiness. And I've got, I'm going to take one issue with him. I'm going to lovingly uh, and tremblingly um, make a qualification of what Spurgeon is saying because I think he goes a tad too far sometimes. But I love what he's saying, and I want to read it. And then I'm going to pause this right in the middle and say, yes, but. Yes, but. I'm going to give him one yes, but. And that's it, and I'm going to let him speak the rest of the time because I think he would agree to it as well. At least he would now. <laughs> all right, here's what he says. Our sanctification is all in Christ. That is to say, it is because we are in Christ that we have the basis of sanctification which consists in being set apart. Now it is because this new life is the great, the true matter of sanctification and because it comes to us 
by virtue of our oneness with Christ, that Jesus Christ is made to us the power and the life by which we are sanctified. Beloved, let your hearts add another meaning. meaning. Let Jesus always be the motive for your sanctification. Is it not a strange thing that some Christians should look to Christ alone for pardon and justification and run away to Moses when they desire sanctification? For instance, you will hear persons preach this doctrine, quote, the Christian is to be holy because if he is not holy, he will fall from grace and perish. Do you not hear the crack of the old legal whip in that? What is that but the yoke of that covenant which none of our fathers were able to bear? It is the bondage of Egypt, not the freedom of the children of God. Christ talks not so, nor his gospel. Pause. Just want to give one little pushback to Spurgeon here. It is not anti-love for God to say to us, don't run out in the street, little child. You will be hit by a car. In other words, warnings and threats are part of the gospel. You cannot read the scriptures and come to any other conclusion. Jesus threatens us as his people from time to time. Do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Such were some of you. But he, and in Hebrews 6, what do we do with Hebrews 6? Hebrews 10, where we're warned, if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is only an expectation of judgment and fire to await us. That is the love and grace of God to tell us that and not the legal whip of the old covenant. But I love Spurgeon and I love what he's saying here. That was my only qualification is that don't think that every warning or threat is anti-gospel, Charles. It isn't. But the kind that he's talking about every week, be holy, be holy, be holy. God is holy. You better be holy or he's going to crush you. That is the legal whip. You better believe it. That's not gospel. But be holy because I am holy as a statement is something Peter said in part because of the gospel. <laughs> all right, so that's all I'm going to say about that. I hope you get my point. Let me, let's go back to Spurgeon and let him wrap us up. He says, Think not to make yourself holy by motives of that kind. They are not right motives for a child of God. How then should we urge the child of God to holiness? Should it not be in this way? You are God's child. Walk worthy of him who is your father. His love to you will never cease. He cannot cast you away. He's faithful and never changes. Therefore, love him in return. This is the motive fit for the child of the free woman, and it moves his heart. The child of the bond woman is driven by the whip, but the child of the free woman is drawn by cords of love. The love of Christ constrains us. Not fear of hell, but love of Christ. Not fear that God will cast us away, but that he cannot do what he cannot do. But the joy that we are saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation compels us to cling to him with all our heart and all our soul forever and ever. Rest assured, if motives fetched from the gospel will not kill sin, motives fetched from the law never will. If you cannot be purged at Calvary, you cannot be cleansed at Sinai. If the water and the blood from the riven side which flowed are not sufficient to purify you, no blood of bulls or of goats will. I mean, no argument from the Jewish law or hope of salvation by your own efforts will ever furnish motives sufficiently strong to cast out sin. Let your reasons for being holy be found in Christ, for he is made of God unto you sanctification. I have always found, and I bear witness to it, that the more 
entirely for the future as well as for the present, I lean upon my Lord. The more conscious I am of my own emptiness and unworthiness and the more completely I rest my whole salvation upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus, the more carefully do I walk in my daily life. I have always found that self-righteous thoughts very soon lead to sinful actions. But on the other hand, the very faith which leads to assurance and makes the heart rest in the faithfulness of God in Christ purifies the soul. He who has this hope in himself purifies himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3. Jesus, the Savior, saves us from our sins and is made of God to us sanctification. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to celebrate before you this morning the truth that Christ has been made to us, sanctification, that he became for us by your plan and purpose, our positional, progressive, and perfected state of holiness. Thank you that to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes us as slaves into children and makes our duty our choice. We long to be melted over and over again by a fresh sight of who you are in your holiness and experience our residual guilt as a result of that, our remaining defilement and uncleanness and sinfulness, and to afresh receive this pronouncement, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and to walk away from that grateful and humbled and faith-filled to depend upon you, lean on you, and live for you. Make it so in all of our lives for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond.